From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is digital inclusion and equity. The pandemic made clear that access to tech isn't the same for everyone. From broadband access to bias in data to who is hired. But innovation and digital transformation need to work for everyone. And that's a challenge for the entire tech community. Two words for you. Unconditional inclusivity. My guest is Janice Zankis, who is the Vice President of Strategy and Planning and Innovation for Social Impact at HPE. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Welcome, Janice. Hi there. Great to be here. So you've been hosting HPE's Element podcast this season, and the episodes focus on inclusion. In your conversations with experts about digital equity, and uh, which includes balancing business and social agendas, bias in data, and how companies can use digital equity as a means of innovation, what sorts of innovative thinking and approaches stand out to you? So we've been talking a lot about ways that technology and innovative approaches can actually be useful for tackling equity and inclusion. And we've had a number of very interesting guests and topics uh, ranging from thinking about how bias in media can be detected uh, all the way into thinking about trustworthy AI and how companies can actually build in an innovation agenda with digital equity in mind. So uh, one example would be, uh, we recently spoke to Eves Berquist, who's the director of the Entertainment Technology Center at the University of Southern California. And he leads a research center uh, focusing on AI and neuroscience and media. And he shared with us an effort to use AI to actually scan images, to scan scripts, to, uh, to watch movies and detect common uses of stereotypes to also kind of look at how bias can be associated with stereotypes, whether intentional or not, you know, in the creation of a media uh, piece, for example, and then to help provide that uh, information on, you know, thousands of uh, scripts and movies back to script writers and script reviewers and movie producers so that they can start to increase their awareness and understanding of how, you know, the selection of certain actors or directors use of certain images and approaches can lead to um, an impression of bias. And so by being able to automate that using AI, it really makes the job easier uh, for those in the profession to actually understand how maybe, you know, in an unconscious way, they're creating bias or creating uh, an illusion that maybe they didn't intend to. So that's an example of how technology is really assisting kind of human-centered thinking about um, how we're using media to influence. That's amazing because that's an industry that maybe, I mean, obviously there's technology involved, but maybe a bit surprised that AI could be actually used in such a way. 
Yeah, AI has a lot of ability to um, scan and learn uh, way beyond, you know, the, the scale that the human brain uh, can can do that in. But I think there's also, you know, you have to be careful when you're talking about AI and and how AI models are trained and, and the possibility for bias being introduced into those models. So you really have to kind of think about it end to end. So if we dig a little deeper into the components of inclusion and digital equity issues, like starting with you know, where we are now, what does the landscape look like at this point? And where are we falling short when it comes to digital equity? There's three ways to think about this. Um, one being, is there bias within the technology itself? An example I just mentioned around AI potentially being built on biased models is certainly one example of that. The second is, who has access to the technology? We have, you know, quite a disproportionate um, set of accessibility to uh, cellular, to broadband, to technologies itself across the world. Uh, and the third is, you know, what is the representation of underrepresented groups, uh, underserved groups in uh, tech companies overall? And all three of those factors, you know, contribute to where we could be falling short uh, around digital equity. Yeah, that's not a small amount <laughs> of points there to, to really think about and, and dig through. But, you know, when we're thinking about this through that tech lens, how has the enormous increase in the volume of data affected digital equity? So it's a great thing to point out. There is a ton of data uh, growing uh, at the at what we call at the edge, at the source of where information gets created, whether it be you know on a manufacturing line or on a agricultural field or where there's sensors de- detecting you know creation of processes and information. You know, in fact, most companies I think say that uh, you know I think more than seventy percent of companies say they don't have a full grasp on data being created. Uh, in their organizations that they may have access to. So it's it's being created. The problem is, is that data useful? Is that data meaningful? How is that data organized? Um, and how do you share that data in such a way that you can actually gain useful outcomes and insights for it? And is that data also potentially being created in a way that's biased from the get-go? So an example for that might be, I think a common example that we hear about a lot is, gosh, a lot of medical testing is done on white males. And so therefore, does that mean the outcomes from medical testing that's occurring and all the data gathered on that should only be used or applied to white males? Is is there any uh, problem around it not representing females or people of color? Could those uh, data points gathered from testing in a broader, more diverse uh, range of demographics result in different outcomes? And that's really um, an important thing to do. The second thing is around um, the access to the data. So yes, data is being generated, you know, uh, in increasing volumes far more than we predicted. But um, how is that data being shared? And are the people collecting or the machines or the organizations collecting that data willing to share it? I think we see today that there's not an equitable exchange of data. And those producing data aren't always seeing the value back to them for sharing their data. So an example of that would be, you know, smallholder farmers around the world of which, you know, 70% are women. Um, They may be producing a lot of information about what they're growing and how they're growing it. And if they share that, 
to, you know, uh, various members along the food system or the food supply chain, is there a benefit back to them for sharing that data, for example? So um, there are other kind of examples of this in the medical or health uh, field. So there might be, you know, private information about your body, your images, your health results, you know, how do you share that for the benefit in an aggregated way um, of society or for research without compromising privacy. I mean, an example of addressing this is the you know, introduction of swarm learning where data can be shared, but it can also be held private. So I think this really kind of highlights the need for rights management, governance, uh, high levels and degrees of security end-to-end, and trust, uh, ensuring that the data being shared uh, is being used in the way it was intended to be used. I think the the third challenge around all this is that the volume of data is almost too wieldy to work with unless you really have a sophisticated technology system. In many cases, um, you know, there's uh, an increasing demand for high performance computing and and GPUs. um, And, you know, at HPE, for example, we have uh, high performance computing as a service offered through GreenLake. And that's a way to help um, create greater access or democratizing the access uh, to data. But having systems and ways, um, or I'll call it data spaces, to share distributed and diverse data sets is going to be more and more important as we look at the possibilities of sharing across, not just within a company, but across companies and across governments and across NGOs to actually drive the benefit. Yeah, and across research bodies and hospitals and schools, as the, the pandemic has has told us as well, right? That sort of sharing is is really important, but to keep the privacy settings on as well. That's right. And that's uh, not widely available today. That's that's mm-hmm. an area of innovation that really needs to be um, applied across all of the data sharing concepts. You know, there's a lot to this, but is there a return on investment for enterprises that actually invest in digital equity? So I have a problem with the question, and that's because we shouldn't be thinking about digital equity only in terms of does it improve the P&L? I think there's been a lot of effort recently done to try to make that argument to, to kind of bring the discussion back to the purpose. But ultimately, to me, this is about the culture and purpose of a company or an organization. It can't just be a P&L decision. It has to be around thought leadership and innovation and um, how you can, you know, engage your employees in a way that's meaningful and, you know, a way to build relevance uh, for your company. Um, I think one of the examples um, that NCWIT, the National Center for Women in Technology, uh, used to describe um, the need for equity and inclusion is uh, that inclusion changes what's possible. So when you start to think about innovation and addressing problems of the long term, uh, you really need to you know stretch your thinking and uh, away from just the immediate you know product you're creating you know next quarter and selling for the rest of the year. It, it needs to be a values-based set of activities that oftentimes can bring goodwill, can bring trust, it leads to new partnerships, it grows new pipelines. And and uh, the recent trust barometer published by Edelman um, had a couple of uh, really interesting data points. Uh, one being that, you know, 80%, 86% of consumers expect brands to act beyond their product and business. And they believe that that trust 
pays dividends, that uh, 61% of consumers will advocate for a brand that they trust. Um, and 43% will remain loyal to that brand, even through a crisis. Um, and then it's true for investors, too. They also found that 90% of investors believe that a strong ESG performance makes for better long-term investments for a company. And then I think what we've seen, you know, really in spades here at uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise is that our employees really want to be a part of these projects um, because it's rewarding, it's value aligned, and it gives them exposure to really sometimes very difficult problems around um, solving for. Uh, if if, if uh, innovation for equity and inclusion were that easy, it would have been done already, right? So, mm-hmm. so some of the challenges, you know, in the world today uh, that align to the United Nations SDGs, for example, are very difficult problems, and they are stress stretching the um, boundaries of technology innovation today. The Edelman uh, Barometer also found that you know fifty nine percent of people who are thinking about leaving their jobs are doing so for better alignment with their personal values. So having programs like this and activities in your company or in your organization really can impact um, you know, all of these aspects, not just your P&L. And I think you have to think about it systematically like that. And ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance uh, Ideas or Aspects, Standards, etc. And SDG is the UN's uh, initiative on sustainability development goals. So, th- you know, th- this is a lot, right? Because we're not actually assigning a dollar amount to what is possible here. It's more like if an enterprise wants to be socially conscious, <laughs> not even socially conscious, just a player and attract the right talent and um, have trust for their, their, their customers, have trust in them, they really have to invest in other ways of making um, digital equity real for everyone, not maybe not just for their customers, but for tomorrow's customers as well. That's right. And so um, the thing, though, is it's not just kind of a one and done activity. It's not like, oh, I want my company to do better at digital equity. And so let's go do this project. It really has to be a full fledged commitment um, around uh, a culture change or an enhancement to you know, a comprehensive approach around this. And uh, so so ways to do this would be, you know, don't expect to go too fast. This is a long term. You're in it for the long haul. And, and you're really thinking um, or needing to think across industries with your customers, with your partners, and to really take into, a fact, into account that innovation around achieving digital equity needs to be inclusive in and of itself. So um, you can't move too fast. You, you actually need to include those who provide a voice to ideas that maybe you don't have. I, I think another great um, a comment or a slogan from NC Wet is the idea you don't have is the voice you haven't heard. So mm. how do you hear those voices you haven't heard, right? And how do you learn from the experts or from those you're trying to serve and expect, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? Expect that you don't necessarily have the right awareness necessarily, you know, at the ready in your company. And you need to really bring that in so that you have representation to help drive that innovation. And then that innovation will drive inclusivity. Yeah, and I think that's probably so crucial, especially what we've learned these last few years of the pandemic. If customers don't trust brands and employees don't trust the company they work for, 
They'll find other opportunities, right? So it, this is a real thing. This is affecting companies' bottom lines. This is not a, a touchy-feely, pie-in-the-sky thing, but it is ongoing. As you mentioned, inclusivity changes what's possible. That's not a one-time thing. That's ongoing. But there are still um, obstacles. So maybe the first obstacle is just understanding this is a long process. It's ongoing. The company is changing, right? So digital transformation is important, as is digital equity transformation. So what other things do companies kind of have to think about when they're working toward digital equity? Right. So, so as I said, I think you have to include voices that you don't presently have. You know, you have to have the voice of those you're trying to serve in your uh, work on innovation to drive digital equity. You need to, you know, kind of build the expectation that this is not uh, a one and done thing. This is a culture shift. This is a long term commitment that has to has to be in place. Um, and, uh, and you can't go too fast. You can't expect that, you know, just, you know, let's just say, oh, I'm going to adopt a new, uh, let's just say, for example, facial recognition technology into, uh, my application so that, you know, I have more awareness. Well, you know what, sometimes those technologies don't work. We know already that facial recognition technologies, which are rapidly being decommissioned are inherently biased, uh, and they're not working for all skin tones. And so that's an example of, oh, okay, somebody had a good idea and maybe a good intention in mind, but, you know, it failed miserably in terms of uh, addressing, you know, inclusivity and equity. So um, expect to kind of iterate, expect that there will be challenges and you have to learn as you go to actually achieve it. But do you have an outcome in mind? Do you have, you know, a goal or an objective around equity? Are you measuring that in some way, shape or form over the long haul? And who are you involving to actually create that? Those are all important considerations to be able to address as you as you try to achieve digital equity. You mentioned the example of using AI to go through screenplays to point out bias. That must be applicable in a number of different industries. So like, where else does AI machine learning have uh, such a possible role f- for possibility, really, in digital equity? Many, many places. Uh, certainly a lot of use cases uh, in healthcare, but one I'll add is in agriculture and food systems. So that is a mm. very urgent problem with the growth of the population expected to be, you know, over 9 billion by 2050. We are, we are not on track on being able to feed the world. And that's tightly complicated by the issues around climate change. Um, so we've been working with CGIAR, uh, an uh, academic research leader in the world around uh, food systems, and uh, also with a nonprofit called Digital Green in India, where they're working with uh, 2 million farmers in Bihar around helping those farmers uh, gain better market information about when to harvest their crops and to understand what the market opportunity is for those crops at the different markets that they may go to. And so it's a great um, AI problem around weather, transportation, uh, crop type, market pricing, um, and uh, and how those figures all come together into the hands of a farmer who can actually decide to harvest or not. Uh, that's one example. I think um, other examples with CGIR really are around uh, biodiversity and understanding information about what to plant given the changing nature of water and precipitation and soil health and providing those insights and that information in a way that um, smallholder farmers in Africa can actually benefit from that. Um, you know, when to fertilize, when to 
uh, and where to fertilize, perhaps, you know, is, those are all techniques for improving profitability um, on the part of a small shareholder farmer. Um, and that that's an example of where AI can do those complicated uh, insights and models over time, you know, uh, in, in, in concert with weather and climate data to actually make pretty good recommendations that can be useful to these farmers. So, I mean, that's an example. I mean, another example we've been working on is uh, one around disease prediction. So really understanding um, for certain diseases that are um, prominent in tropical areas, uh, what are the factors that lead up to an outbreak of, uh, of a mosquito-borne disease? And um, how can you predict it? Or can you predict it well enough in advance of actually being able to take an action or, or, you know, uh, move a therapeutic or an intervention to the area that could be uh, suspect to the outbreak. Um, that's another complicated AI problem that, uh, that hasn't been solved today. And those are, those are great uh, ways to uh, address challenges that affect equity and access to treatment, for example. And certainly with the capabilities of compute power and AI, we're talking about, you know, almost real-time capabilities versus trying to go back over history of weather maps and much more analog um, types of, of ways to deliver under, and understand information. Right. So what practical actions can companies take today to address digital equity challenges? So um, I think there are a few things. One is, um, first of all, Building your company with an intention to uh, have an equitable, you know, inclusive uh, employee population. So first of all, you know, the actions you take around hiring, who you mentor, who you help grow and develop, you know, in your company are important. And as part of that, you know, companies need to showcase role models. It might be a little cliche at this point, but you can't be what you can't see. And so we know in the world of technology that, uh, there haven't been a lot of um, great visible examples of, you know, women CIOs or African-American CTOs or, you know, leaders um, and engineers doing really cool work uh, that can inspire the next generation of talent to uh, participate. So I think that's one thing. So showcase those role models, invest in describing your efforts uh, in inclusivity and innovation around achieving digital equity. So really trying to um, uh, explain how uh, a particular technology innovation is leading to a better uh, outcome around uh, equity and inclusion is just important. So many students choose by the time they are, you know, in fifth grade, for example, that technology is boring or that it's not for them. It doesn't have a human impact that they really desire. And that falls on us, right? So, you know, we have worked with a program called Curated Pathways to Innovation, which is an online personalized uh, learning uh, product that's free for schools that is attempting to exactly do that. Reach middle schoolers before they make that decision that a career in technology is not for them by really helping them improve their awareness and interest in careers and technology, and then to help them, you know, kind of in a stepwise function in an agency driven approach, um, start to prepare for that content and that development around technology. But, you know, you can think about children, you know, in the early elementary school days where they're, you know, reading books and seeing examples of, you know, what does a nurse do? What does a firefighter do? What does a policeman do? Mm. Are those 
kinds of communications and examples available around what does a data scientist do? You know, what does a, co- a computer engineer do? What does a cybersecurity professional do? And why is that important? And why is that relevant? And I do think um, we have a lot of work to do as companies in technology to really showcase these examples. I mean, I would argue that you know, technology companies have had the greatest amount of impact on our world globally in, you know, in the last decade or two than probably any other industry. Yet we don't tell that story. And so how do we help connect the dots for students? So we need to be a voice. We need to be visible, um, you know, in developing that interest in the field. And that's something that everybody can do right now. Um, so that's, you know, kind of my two cents on that. So there's so much opportunity here, Janice, and certainly a lot of responsibility technologists really need to take on. So how do you envision the next two or three years going with digital equity and inclusion? Do you feel like this clarion bell is just ringing all over the tech industry? I, I do. In fact, uh, I, I see a few key points really, really essential in the future evolution of uh, equity and inclusion. First of all, I think we need to recognize that technology advancements are actually ways that inclusion can be improved and supported. So it's a means to an end. And so recognize that the improvements we make in technology, innovations we bring uh, can drive inclusion uh, more fully. Secondly, I think we need to think about the future of work and where the jobs will be and how they'll be developing. Um, We need to think about education as a means to participate you know, in what is and will continue to be the fastest growing sector uh, globally. And that's around technology, around cybersecurity, around data science and those career fields. Um, But yet, you know, right now, some states uh, really don't even have uh, high school computer science curriculum in place. It's hard to believe that, but it's true. And, And some states that do don't give college prep credit for that. And so if we think the the majority of jobs that are going to be created are going to be in the technology sector, Um, in the fields I just described, then we need to ensure that our education system is supporting that um, in all avenues uh, in order to address the future of work. Uh, First and foremost, it has to start with literacy. We do still have issues around the world and even in the United States around literacy. So uh, we really have to tackle that at the get-go. The third thing is systems thinking. So these really tough problems around equity Um, are more than just funding or writing a check to an NGO or or doing a philanthropic uh, lunch packing exercise. Those are all great. I'm not saying we should stop those. But I actually think we have a lot of expertise in the technology sector around how to partner, how to work together, how to think about a system and to um, allow for, you know, outcomes where you bring uh, the individual strengths of all the partners together uh, towards a common outcome. And I think now more than ever, and then going into the future, being able to build systems of change for inclusion and equity are going to be essential. And then finally, I think the innovation that uh, is being created through the current programs around equity and social impact are really challenging us to think about bigger, better solutions. And I'm really, really optimistic that that these new ideas that can be gained from those working on social innovation and technology innovation for social impact are just going to continue to impress us and to continue to drive solutions to these problems. I love that. That optimism in bigger and better solutions to the problems, that's kind of what we all really need to focus on today. Janice, thank you so much for joining us on the Business Lab. Thank you so much for having me. 
That was Janice Zankis, Vice President of Strategy and Planning and Innovation for Social Impact at HPE, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Director of Insights, the Custom Publishing Division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and you can find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.